This is the Young Professionals Podcast, proudly brought to you by Adapt Careers, where we speak with young professionals to understand what they do in their roles day to day, how they got there and what they've learned along the way. My name is Luke Marriott. And I am Nicholas Sargent, better known as Sarge. And we are your co-hosts. Sarge, what do our listeners need to do? To stay up to date and support what we're doing, please subscribe, like the episode and leave a comment on any of our social channels. We can't wait to hear from you. Hi guys, Luke and Sarge here and welcome back to another episode of the Young Professionals Podcast. Luke, who are we speaking with today? Sarge, very excited today. We're taking one of our first kind of dips into the technology space and we're speaking with Shay Potter, who is an interdisciplinary cybersecurity professional specializing in phishing and threat research. Shay is currently a senior consultant at a big four consulting firm specializing in insider threat research and analysis. Now based in Sydney, Shay made the leap to the big city from Noosa at only 17 to undertake her Bachelor of Political, Economic and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney. Shay is proudly shaping her career around the growing intersections between cybersecurity and international relations, drawing on her education in political science and counterterrorism to solve problems with a particular passion for promoting diversity and careers in tech. Shay, there's heaps of uh, interesting things to fish or, fish or flesh out there. Uh, welcome <laughs> to the show. Really looking forward to it. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to have a chat all about it. No, well, as I said, there's heaps of stuff to dive into, um, but uh, like some most listeners will know, we like to start off with what you're doing in your role day to day. So why don't you let us know yeah. what you're doing at, at the Big Four Consulting Firm? Yeah, so it's a fresh role for me. I've just joined the team and what I'll be doing is that so when we think about cybersecurity, there's sort of three things that we all want to cover off. So there's people, process and technology. And people often think that cybersecurity is really just about the technology, but the people and process are so important. So we've, we've got sort of the hardcore technologists who really focus on securing the tech around the firewalls and all of the endpoints and the networks and the systems. And then we've got people who work in sort of legal and governance who look at securing the policy and then for me, I really look at securing the people. So what I'll be doing day to day is looking at insider threat research. So often when we think about these big companies and even small to medium-sized enterprises as well, they've got a really amazing, juicy amount of um, sensitive information that they have, whether that's like market sensitive data, um, their own intellectual property with their research that they've done, or whether it's um, customer data, like personally, um, personally identifiable information, all of that, that is um, a really juicy target for external actors, but also sometimes internal staff. And so sometimes whether it's malicious or just through ignorance or not understanding, there can be situations where staff will seek to exfiltrate that data. And so it's really important um, from the company's perspective that that is kept within the company. So for me, day to day, it's a lot of working on tooling. So there's a big sort of suite of tools that we can use to analyze people's um, behaviors on their networks, uh, what kind of documents they're accessing, the frequency of when they're accessing that information and the people that they're contacting with that information. So it's really around investigating and tracking the flows of data 
to understand when it's being misappropriated or when it's potentially leaving the company. So that sort of day-to-day down in the deep weeds, looking at that those um, flows of information day-to-day, but then also when something comes out that we find concerning or interesting, we'll then launch an investigation into really unpacking um how this information may be leaving the company, what are the ramifications of it. And then it's really a a collaboration between my team, different legal teams, potentially HR, places like that, where we then sort of come together to look at a roadmap for how we remediate this and also potentially informing regulators and things like that, depending on what data has, has left the company. Jay, you mentioned tooling before. What sort of tools do you use to to track when people are accessing stuff, what they're accessing and, and where they're sending it to? Yeah, so it's really around looking at information flows. So there's logging tools where you can see logs of what people are doing. It's understanding how people are accessing information maybe on the cloud or on like SharePoint sites and things like that. And it's really around tracking through how that information is being used. And so we can kind of profile information in a way that we understand is an appropriate use. And then when we find anomalies in that appropriate use that we've established, then we can look at understanding, okay, why is this being used in a way that's um, an anomaly to what we would expect? So where you've got a company, because like I'm at PwC and I don't know how many people work at PwC Australia, but there's a lot and there's obviously a lot of information that we have too that, that you're trying to protect or in, in Deloitte's case, you're trying to protect. How do you track that when you have, let's say, 10,000 people and I presume that your team isn't 10,000 people big? How, <laughs> like what, what, what flags is being like something that's suspicious versus what's not? Yeah, so this this is tough. And I think a lot of people in technology would agree that when we work with some of these tools, there's a lot of false positives. But the tooling that, that we use, because it's being used in such a, a broad sample size, what that actually means is that it's a continual res- refinement of how we're looking at what information is being sort of spewed out of it. So it's it's really around how we can identify what is an anomaly. And that is, it's crunched through in terms of volume. I'm glad we don't have to sort through it manually. This is why the tooling is really important. And even when there's false false positives, but it's, it's when we can sort of rely on that technology to kind of do that sort of grunt work, the manual labor, that sort of thing. Because, you know, there's companies out there with, Um, hundreds of thousands of employees that have to do this kind of work. So we really are reliant on um, a a great use of technology, but then that human expertise of my team coming in and actually going, okay, we can investigate this or discount this as a false positive. And it's really around that sort of human tech collaboration to, to get to the best outcome especially when we're looking at huge volumes of data like this. I think that's an important point that the human tech uh, collaboration, like you just phrased it there. And 
you know, when the, when the conversation comes up, it's like, oh, is technology going to do all of these jobs that we just can't do at scale? Um, it sounds like yes, but we also need that human touch to understand what is actually legit and what's what's not legit and what someone would actually be doing. Is that a kind yeah, of... Yeah, absolutely. It's so essential to have a human filter and to have people who understand the nuances around how people use information. And it's not just in sort of the insider threat research um, landscape. It's also when we're looking at um, external threats come in as well. So while we have technology and tooling that that's really important, it's essential that we have that human filter because at the end of the day, like all humans are interfacing with the technology. So it's really important that we have people there who have that expertise to understand what the tooling's saying, to troubleshoot. So when when people think about whether um, AI is going to take over our jobs and things like that, in the professional services industry, I think that what that looks like is that it really demands that people are um, tech literate. So it's a shifting left rather than removing jobs. So people need to kind of shift into understanding the technology that they interface with, which may be automating part of their roles, but there's still that really important human expertise that you just can't replace that will, that will be needed. Yeah, it's a tool at the end of the day. It doesn't matter what you're trying to do with it. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes tools break. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Um, well, we touched on it uh, kind of in, in the bio and we uh, mentioned phishing. I, I think that's kind of a similar yeah. answer to the question. But do you want to walk us through what, say, an attack by, a, I can't remember the, the, the word that you used, but someone trying to get the data from, say, a big company, what that would actually look like and yeah. what you guys are trying to do to, um, I guess, set up, you know, shields to protect the company from that? Yeah, absolutely. So phishing accounts for about 80% of external cybersecurity incidences and is really kind of the most important in terms of volume of attack and also residual impact on a company. So phishing, it, it really has two parts. So the actual email is a social engineering attack. So that plays on on the human who's interfacing with that, who's, you know, reading the email in their inbox. And it's using these manipulative social cues to confuse someone or to make them believe that it's a legitimate email. So there's it's really playing on human psychology. And then the second part of that is the payload. So when a user does fall for the phishing email, whether they've clicked on a dodgy link, opened an attachment, or actually entered their work credentials into a login form, that's that's really common, um, then that payload that is executed after that human interaction is what does the damage. So um, there's also... I think people underestimate how sophisticated they can be now. It's really not the Nigerian print scam <laughs> that is impacting big four companies or banks or sort of these financial services institutions. It's really the ones that are, are sophisticated and targeted to people's roles. And there's an amazing, fascinating intersection between open source intelligence work that 
um, cyber attackers will use to craft what's called like a spear phishing email and target a small group of people with the aim to get um, that highly sensitive information. So the crown jewels for any sort of attack, whether it's an insider threat or whether it's um, an external cyber attacker, it's always around that sensitive company data that they can use to either then sell on, it's mostly a financial motivator, or to use um, to game the market or to ruin reputation and things like that. From From your experience, what makes a good phishing email? Yeah. So a good phishing email for me, what what I actually did at my previous role is that I researched phishing emails, legitimate phishing emails, and then mimicked them to send to staff. And we use that as a proxy to understand how they would behave when they encountered a real phishing email. So it was a really safe way for us to gather that data and information and to understand our staff's um, cyber hygiene and really understanding of phishing threats. So to me, whenever I was personally designing a phishing simulation, it had to be contextual. So um, obviously, I work for a financial services company. It would kind of take that sort of lean. I would look at what is happening in the threat landscape, what phishing emails are being targeted towards financial institutions and really look at that kind of subset because it's different if it's healthcare or um, schools or government and things like that. So I was looking at a narrow sort of um, uh, subsection there. So I'd make it contextual. I'd also make it a a meaningful measurement of their understanding. So you didn't want to make it too difficult where you're using information that would and be publicly available to an attacker. So it's really important that it actually was commensurate to the risk. Shay, just a bit of context as well. Is this something like, um, you know, trying to impersonate a a Google email saying, hey guys, your G drive is broken, click on this link and, you know, fix it to access this document. Is it that kind of thing that you'd be doing? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Super common. Those kinds of, especially with working from home at the moment as well, it's contextual, not just in kind of the role types that people do, but also what's happening in the world and current events. And now that a lot of people are working from home, we've seen an uptick in file sharing fish. Mm. So phishing emails that mimic even like a Zoom meeting invitation or um, document sharing service, so file sharing service. So it's um, it's really interesting to sort of look at those trends and insights that you can get from what's happening in the, like, the threat landscape and then applying those into how you're testing and educating staff. Cool. And this is probably going to be a, a decent segue into getting into your <laughs> education kind of history, but you yeah. touched on uh, uh, just before the kind of part of the whole um, success of a phishing email is to play on the, the human psychology aspect of things. That is Absolutely. clearly a, a skill that, that you've got, but have you got any, um, you know, technical experience and are you, are you a coder or were you a hacker when you were younger? How did you get into the, the tech side of things? I mean, I am absolutely not I did I did not study computer science. I really had no interest in technology or cybersecurity or anything like that. And it was really around so when I finished my degree, I studied um, a Bachelor of Political, Economic and Social Sciences. And within that I focused pretty heavily on counterterrorism work, but then also I minored in sociology and political economy. So it was a really broad understanding of these macro trends, what 
that's just happening in the world, like how people interrelate on these sorts of macro levels, politically, economically, and socially. And so when I was looking at um, what I wanted to do after uni, in my third year, I participated in this really interesting competition. And I actually didn't even know how important it was until I was there on the day. It was quite amusing. I just kind of rocked up. And then there was people who'd flown in from the US. And then I was like, oh, I should probably take this seriously. So it, it was um, it was a national security um, competition where we had to respond to a, a simulated uh, event. And it just so happened that it was a cybersecurity event. So it was a fictitious attack on our um, national critical infrastructure. And so I was there to sort of argue from a national security perspective. But that event, just the, the content of it was so interesting to me. And I kind of discovered that the skills that I picked up in my degree were really transferable over to a role in cybersecurity and in the technology space because I had no idea of the kind of the that you needed to secure people as well as technology. So the conversations I had with with um, those judges, the people from EY, CBA partners, and things like that, were instrumental in me deciding to enter a career in cybersecurity. So at that time, I think I was nineteen or twenty, and I just could not than moving to Canberra to work for the government. I really enjoyed nights out in Sydney despite the lockout laws and things like that. So I just, Canberra was off the cards for me. So I really had to kind of think about, okay, well, that means I need to sort of navigate into a private sector role. And I and it was those conversations I had around the, the job potential in, in cybersecurity in that third year of uni that really kind of dictated where I went. And so after I finished my degree, I sat down, I think it was like February of 2018, I sat down and I thought, okay, I'm going to apply for some graduate programs. And I sit down and I realized that none of them started until the next year. And I just completely missed that you needed to apply for grad programs almost a year in advance. And so I thought that there is, there's no way I'm going to be working at my uni job, stacking shelves on night shift for another year. So what I did was, is I set up a LinkedIn account. I literally typed the keyword cyber into the search bar. And then I just bulk connection requested everyone pretty much in Australia who's fit, like hundreds of people who fit that description. And then I kind of thought, okay, I'm really going to make a, a go of this. So I leveraged some free online resources from Charles Sturt University. Amazing. It gives you, it's not, it's not like a, a qualification, but it's like a short course that's, you know, recognized and it's taught by industry professionals. So I did a bunch of those for free. And then I just wrote a couple of statuses on LinkedIn around how I was really engaged. I wanted to learn. I just wanted to get my foot in the door. And it turned out that there was such a demand for um, enthusiastic young people to join the cybersecurity industry that people were reaching out to me, messaging me, asking me to come in for interviews or even just to point me towards resources or connections that they had. So I never actually had to write a single job application. It just so happened that 
my role in the financial services um, company um, hit me up and I went for an interview. And so with the fishing work that I did there, they kind of related it to, okay, well, she studied around sort of counterterrorism and that sort of relates to organized crime which is like cyber crime which is basically phishing so it was quite a long road to draw but there's some really interesting parallels that you can learn in a social sciences degree that translates over really effectively into these kinds of roles and the thing is with cybersecurity, if you're looking to get into a career in cyber the the prevailing um opinion is that you you can't teach someone's attitude you can teach them about cyber. So as long as you have that real learning mindset and wanting to read up and research and put in the time to, to learn, then companies will be more than happy with that and they can teach you the technical expertise that you need to know on the job. That's, that's pretty cool, Shay. I love, I love that you went, you went out and you like made, made demand for yourself. A uh, question yeah. for me on that is how, what was the turnaround time between you being like, okay, I'm going to search cyber and connect all these people to them, to then you being a bit of a, yep. guru, a young guru and everyone reaching out to you <laughs> wanting, wanting to try secure you for work. Yep. So I first really started to get the ball rolling in February of 2018 and I started at Macquarie in May, early May. So it was a really short turnaround time and it really speaks to the demand that companies in Sydney and across Australia have for enthusiastic young people who just want to learn. So it was, it kind of blew my mind, the support from the industry at large who genuinely reached out to me saying, hey, like come in for an interview here or maybe speak to this person and things like that. So it's, it's a small industry. It's a growing industry, but that means we, we all really look out for each other as well. Shay, I want to get into in a little bit, like you're, you're, you seem like such a, a passionate and like self-driven person. And if you get an idea in your head, you just go and do it. Um, I want to get into kind of where that came from, but <laughs> another example of that to me is your move yeah. from Noosa to Sydney when you were, pretty young you know 17 you just finished high school do you want to walk us through that I guess experience and then the decision making on you know I'm in a relatively small kind of not country town but you know regional town I'm going to go and move to a massive big city and I don't really know what's going to happen that's it that seems like a massive risk for a for a pretty young person yeah I mean absolutely I when I was in sort of year 11, year 12, I knew that I wanted to go to university. And then I thought, okay, how can I make this the most challenging, difficult experience that I possibly could? Because I already knew that it was going to be difficult. I knew that university was going to be hard, but I just really kind of dared myself to go, okay, but what if you actually went and did the hardest possible thing that you could do? And so I I told my mom that I would apply for universities in Queensland as well, but I I actually didn't. I didn't. And so I just applied for um, courses at the University of Sydney and I got into the course that I wanted and I thought, okay, now I actually have to put in the hard work, you know? So I think that that really came from just looking at where I was in Noosa, looking at 
I mean, it's a beautiful, amazing, incredible place to grow up with the community and the environment. But for me, I knew that I wanted to work in a professional career and there wasn't that sort of scope available to me in Noosa. And I really kind of thought more broadly around sort of what I wanted to do in Brisbane. And that didn't offer me, in my opinion, the same kind of challenge that Sydney would have offered me because I knew that in Sydney, there would be my peers at university would be some of the brightest, most privileged, most educated students in the country and I wanted to see if I could kick it with them and see if I could you know back myself from being from you know a high school that had surfing as a subject a great a great subject but I really wanted to see if I could put myself out of my comfort zone in a way that would just push me as far as I possibly could while still being you know relatively safe in it And so I decided to move to Sydney. I moved on the 1st of January in 2015. I graduated in December. So I was straight out, straight out of there. And um, yeah, it was was a really challenging time because not only was I starting um, university, I was also living on my own for the first time, living in a new city. And it was really tough. And I kind of always appreciated the challenging times. I mean, I remember going to the Coles at Broadway and I had 70 cents to buy some dinner. And I think that while that is, is, would be really tough for a lot of people, for me, I kind of did have a safety net of, I could go back to Noosa, you know, if, if things got really tough. And so I, I really saw that as a, a formative character building experiences, those early few years spent in Sydney where I was really discovering who I was, how I could, you know, look after myself independently. And those kinds of lessons for me were, were so instrumental in really building up the, the courage that I have in myself to really back myself and to keep the momentum going. So everything that I'm doing now was really informed by those early experiences where I did have to sit way out of my comfort zone. I did have to, you know, make things work for myself. And so now that I know, I know that I can do all of that. So it means that when I look at making, you know, a risky decision now around whether I change jobs or whatever I want to do, I already know that I can do it. So making riskier decisions now are a lot easier because I really kind of put myself through tough times in in a kind of a, a safe way when I was younger. What was the hardest hardest thing that you um, encountered when you made the move from Sydney, from Noosa to Sydney? Was it like just being by yourself? Was it dealing, like meeting a whole bunch of people you never met before? Yeah. I mean, it all flies at you so quickly. And I think the hardest thing is really self-regulation. So knowing around your priorities and how you invest your time and the very limited resources that I had. So I had to be very clear around what my purpose was, why I was in Sydney, why I was putting myself through such a tough time. So being really clear on my priorities and my values was important for me to kind of self-regulate. So I knew that I didn't want to squander the experience to, you know, not do well at uni and and kind of 
go back to Noosa, not with my tail between my legs, but just knowing for me that I'd not put in a hundred percent. So for me, it was always around holding myself accountable first and foremost to my own values and my own priorities, not anyone else's. Well, you, you touched on it just before in terms of like the concept of, you know, if it all kind of um, didn't work out, you could always just still go back to Noosa. Yeah. Like compare your attitude now to what people would say is like risky things compared to what you would, your perception of that risky thing back then. Like, is it even risky now? When, when you've got that perspective, it's like, it's not really that big of a deal. Like just go and do it kind of thing. I would yeah. imagine. Yeah, absolutely. Because I had so many experiences where I failed safely. And I think that that's really important. I had those experiences where I experienced hardship and tough times and I made it through myself. And it means that I have a sort of just an innate belief in my own ability now to perform. So if I think about how I can extend myself now, whether it's professionally with fitness goals or financial goals or anything like that, I sort of just have this bank of experience now that I can draw upon where there were times where I didn't know if I was going to pull through for myself and I totally did. So now when I look at making those kinds of leaps and those risky decisions, it means that it, it doesn't feel like so much of a risk and I can really extend myself in ways that, you know, 17, 18 year old Shay would be so proud of now. And so being able to test yourself in those safe-ish environments, I, I think are so important in kind of building up your resiliency and your grit that will then inform how you make decisions for the rest of your, you know, 20s and 30s. On the point of like, uh, you know, failing safely, what would you have to say to someone that is, you know, either making, uh, tossing up like a, a career change decision, whether I want to get into cybersecurity or they, you know, studying an economics and policy, a politics degree and thinking, what else can I do that might be a bit of a risk? What would you yeah. kind of say to those people? And what would you say in terms of, um, I guess, tips on getting into the industry? Yeah, yeah. So if you're looking at moving into a career in technology, whether you're coming out of university or you're looking to make a career change sort of mid-career, I would say that feel good about it because if you have the attitude to want to move into the industry, then you're halfway there because employers, there, there is such a, a talent gap between people who are coming through this pipeline and actual the the amount of roles out there, even um, sort of grad roles or associate level roles. It means that if someone who's interviewing you can see that you have an attitude where you're wanting to learn, then then you're pretty much set because you can learn the technical things in in the job. And so what I would say to them is to really understand um, your priorities around why you want to make a shift in tech, into technology because there is, there is a learning curve and there's a certain amount of time that you have to invest into learning. And I think that that really energizes some people. 
So that's great. I would also look at what skills you have that are transferable and really market yourself on those kinds of skills and build up that career narrative. So whether you did like an arts and social sciences degree like me, you can really build up a career narrative around how you want to look at securing the people side of the people process and technology. Or if you're mid-career and you've got an experience in education and teaching, you can come in and do cyber awareness and education because, you know, like 90% of the time when companies get hacked, it's because a human sort of failed at one point. So they clicked the link or they didn't understand the process properly. So that education of staff is a huge segment of the cybersecurity industry that is growing and there's huge demand for it, but it's also the most accessible in terms of people who want to kind of use that as a lily pad to jump into other technical roles. So it's really around getting your foot in the door using the skills that you already have, whether it's like project management or education or legal experience, things like that, leveraging the skills that you already have to move laterally. So once you get your foot in the door, there's project managers who work on cybersecurity teams. And then once you're in there or HR managers or recruiters or anything like that, once you're in the door, then you have access to all of the people in the company, all of the technical people who you can then talk to to say, hey, how can I, you know, build it into my personal development of moving into a more technical team? And they've got all the resources there. They've got all the insights that you can draw upon. So I think go in with a really good attitude, build up what your career narrative is, do some free online courses. There's amazing resources that you can access for free if you just do like a quick Google search. So that's what I did. And I came across these really great um resources from Charles Sturt Uni. With those courses, Shay, what, yeah. um, you know, you can type in, I, I guess, cybersecurity courses, but what kind of yep. skills are you really trying to get a, I guess, taste of if, if you've never touched it before? Like yep. what are one or two things that you yep. could do a free course on? Yeah, absolutely. So the, the two that I did, so as soon as I got the call from Macquarie to say, hey, we'd love you to join the team. You'll be doing, you know, you'll be building out our phishing simulation program. I found a free online course from Charles Sturt Uni that, that was all around phishing and awareness. And I did that. And the woman who taught that course I now know professionally. And then also as I was kind of really wanting to establish my sort of base knowledge, there's um, really great introductory courses around like enterprise cybersecurity that you can do that really give you a good basic overview of everything from networks and firewalls to um, threat analysis to malware to cyber awareness. And it really gives you sort of a, a tapper's selection um, of the different um, areas of cybersecurity. Because I think that when you're first joining, you don't really know what kind of cyber roles are out there. So to do those sorts of free introductory courses, the short online courses can be really good in just kind of orienting yourself and to kind of see which areas that you like. And this is something that I've talked about with my friend who um, was working in the music industry, which was just decimated this year. And now she's looking into getting into cybersecurity and making that career jump. So it's really around just kind of doing 
those introductory basics and leveraging all the free resources. And then you can orient yourself to say, hey, I really like this aspect. And then you can really roll with it. On that, I imagine it's probably horses for courses, but is there thinking around if you're, you know, X type of person um, and you learn a certain way, would it be better trying to enter the industry at say, you know, a big four or a massive corporate or would it be better trying to get in at a smaller company or, a, you know, a smaller shop? Is there differences in terms of how those teams would operate? Yeah, absolutely. So with larger companies, um, you'll have potentially hundreds of people who work in the cybersecurity space. And so those teams are quite um, segmented and sort of separate in what they do. So they have very specific role types that they focus on, whether that's um, incident response, threat research, um, privileged access management, cyber awareness, um, the business management and um, BA roles that kind of go along with that. So they're in sort of the larger companies. And then in smaller companies, you can typically find roles where you may need to do a couple of those things. So the larger corporations are better if you are looking to kind of specialize. And then the smaller places is really around where you will have, you know, responsibility in a few different areas. So you'll learn not, not superficially, but to, to not as a um, deep, experience as you would in in a larger company but you would kind of get a more broad understanding of um different jobs in cybersecurity just because you may need to wear a couple of hats in in the role at the at the smaller place and so there's definitely pros and cons to to both of those approaches and in terms of like operating in in the tech space more broadly or in cybersecurity like what's the, what's the culture of of the the industry like and um yeah. like like is it is is the, is it male dominated or female dominated like what's what is what does the landscape kind of look and feel like yeah so so when i did my first linkedin search i was shocked by the level of support that strangers gave to me so the cybersecurity industry um it's it's quite small and we do tend to to know each other and that is amazing because you have this wealth of knowledge that you can tap into with people who've had 20 year long careers or and people who you know like me who are starting out in the first couple of years of their career so I was um really it warmed my heart like how nice everyone was when I first started out and now that I've been in the industry for a couple of years now um there something that I am really passionate about is is bringing more diversity into cybersecurity. and so there's some great fantastic um networks like the Australian Women in um, Security Network and a lot of these groups that are really working to build the diversity and it's not just a gender diversity but also through experiences and backgrounds and neurodiversity which is just so important because the the problems that we're faced with in cybersecurity because you know cyber attackers come from all over the world from all different backgrounds it means that the teams responding to those incidents or solving those problems if they come from a diverse background too it means that we'll be able to solve the problems in a much more holistic way than what we might have if it's only you know a, a group of young australian guys solving the problem because yeah all of our attackers 
they've got diverse backgrounds. They're from all corners of the world, from all kinds of professions and genders and everything like that. So it's really important that, that we have a diverse industry and it's, it's really great. There's a, a genuine um, push to make that a reality through all the different societies and networks that we have through resource allocation and scholarships and, and all of that. And companies are making a real concerted effort to hire diverse candidates because they know that they'll have better business outcomes because of it. So, yeah, everyone I've met in the security industry are very open-minded, very excited. And also what I found is that we're all facing the same problems. So there's a lot of collaboration between the banks or between companies around, you know, we'll have discussions if we're facing the same problem or if uh, there's a phishing campaign that's hitting one of the big banks, then they'll let the other places know to be like, hey, you may experience this, you know, in the coming days. So there's a lot of collaboration between companies, which I think is great because ultimately we're, we're all trying to do the same thing, which is to, you know, secure secure our workplaces and our people and and all of the technology processes that are dependent on us. And, you know, when we think about it, the banks, they're part of our critical infrastructure. So if, if um, CBA goes down or ANZ, things like that, that actually has a real tangible impact on many, many Australians. Oh, that, that collaborative piece within the, the industry, I think, shows how, how quickly it's growing. And, yeah, and, and, how, and how diverse it is as a, as a subject matter. It's like no one, no one 100% knows what's going on. So let's all get together and, Absolutely. and work together to really Absolutely. work it out. Yeah. And what I love about it is that if you've had a career for 20 years in cybersecurity, you're still learning every day. And that's what's really good about people who want to join the industry. You know, you can't master cybersecurity. So if you're just coming in, so long as you want to learn, you'll be able to pick up the basics really quickly. And then you're just learning like everyone else who's been in the career for, you know, a couple decades. One, one final wrap, one before we wrap up, Shay, what advice would you have for 17-year-old Shay? And um, oh. <laughs> um, I would tell myself to stop dyeing my hair and to invest <laughs> in Bitcoin. <laughs> I'd be like, yeah, there's this, there's this really interesting thing called Bitcoin that you should probably start to understand and chuck a couple dollars at it. Um, but in, in all seriousness, I would tell her that you have the um, mindset and determination and motivation to do really great things and, and to really back yourself in your decision making because once you understand your priorities and your values, when you have that kind of underpinning um, sort of ideological stream in your head for how you want to navigate your life, it makes the decisions and the tough decisions much easier because you've always got like a reference point to come back to. So if, if you want to make a decision and, and you're kind of like sitting on the fence, just draw back on what your priorities and what your values are. And that will allow you to navigate what you want to do so much easier. And, and I would 
always say, you know, talk to as many people as you can because Sydney is a small place, Australia is a small place, and it's amazing the people who you'll meet who can have amazing impacts on your life and to to really pay it forward as well because people have, you know, given chances to you now that I'm a bit older, I really want to mentor young people and to give the same kind of chances to them. So it's really around recognizing your privileges as well and, and paying it forward too. So do that 17 year old Shay. <laughs> I, think, I think that's awesome advice and a great place to leave it Shay. So thanks for coming on the show today <laughs> and, and talking us through what fishing is and, and how, how much of a growing industry the, the cybersecurity space is. So thanks a lot. No worries. It's been great to chat. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks, Shay. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to today's episode. If you have a profession you would like to know more about, a question you would like us to ask, or a story you would like to tell, please reach out to us on the social channels at either the Young Professionals Podcast, TYPPAU, or our personal profiles. We'd love to hear from you.